This episode of Roderick on the Line is sponsored by Foremost, a small batch American-made clothing line for men and women from the same folks who brought you Need Edition. See this month's inaugural collection and learn more at foremostedition.com. Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Merlin. How's it going? Good. So Mm. good. I'm so grateful to you for sometimes being willing to push. Oh, I can push. You push, and and sometimes, uh, you know, there's a part of me that says, don't, don't, stay on target. Mm -hmm. Stay on target. I just want to bring out the best in you. Yeah, but pushing sometimes helps. Yeah. I was on my way in today, and, you know, of course, I only have an AM radio in my truck, and so I'm listening to the... um, the radio station KIXI, mm. which was my dad's radio station. They used to play like a steady diet of just the... Oh, that's where you get all your Frank Sinatra music? Yeah, just the big bands. Just mm-hmm. the blue hair, the blue hairs. But all those people are dead now. Yeah. And so the radio station still exists. And I've seen this before with radio radio station sort of play... Uh, what, what do they call it? Um, the... Um, Demi- uh, the, the demographic rotation, mm, yeah, radio de- station. De- de- I'll call it a demo. Well, but I'm talking about like the music that they play mm-hmm. on a radio station is called the programming. Programming, mm. and the programming has switched. I'm driving in, and the, the DJ's talking to me, and he says, "He says, you know, there are a lot of differences between men and women. Did you know men are more likely to be colorblind? Huh? This is John Tesh." For KXI Radio. And the DJ is John Tesh. What? Yeah. Oh, it's like, that, a, like a franchise kind of deal. No, right? he's, 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 give, he's given the call signs for, for KXI. And, uh, and so I listened to him for a while, and he's like, Barry Manilow is the music of our generation. And I was just, I was like, what generation is he talking about? Right. Right, like this was the radio station of the of the greatest generation, who are all gone, and so now it's been it's been replaced. They've like these people have kind of stepped in and taken over, and they're not. I don't think the baby boomers would characterize Barry Manilow as the music of their generation. No, I don't think they. I don't think that even if they like Barry Manilow, I don't think that's the example they would probably. <laughs> Right, so, so who is he talking to? I don't know. The radio seems, I guess it's always been a strange thing, but it really, it seems so odd now. I listen mostly to public radio when we're listening mm-hmm. to the radio, mm-hmm. but sometimes we'll flip over. And um, I, first of all, just the, the commercials are so depressing. It's, it, it, do you get that on your uh, KAXI <laughs> well, station? The commercials are going to be very depressing on KAXI because they're mostly for like ensure um the uh the like vitamin enriched milkshakes. Oh, yeah, 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 sure, sure. <laughs> well I, I, I feel like I hear a lot of like financial desperation ads. Oh, right. That, that's a that's a that's a pretty big one. Losing your home? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's all payday loans and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But that's and that's you know typical daytime fare. But it's strange. I mean uh, it's amazing to think how much that industry must have changed. But we've got a station here that I like a lot. Uh, I like a lot. It's very funny. And, and for some reason, the, the, the entire concept of this station delight, delights me. Uh, you know how we got Coit Tower here. Yeah. We have a station called KOIT. 
98.5 K-O-I-T. And it's an FM station whose primary um, claim to fame is it claims to be the station that everybody can listen to at work. Oh, right, because it never says anything or plays anything sketchy. Yeah, it's all, it's all, it's just, it's basically, and, and what's funny is if you're in an elevator or a waiting room or anywhere where there is a radio playing, it's probably KOIT. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's very relaxing. Uh, yeah, I feel like K- KIXI is the, used to be that for sure. You know, they would, maybe they'd play The Lady is a Tramp, uh, which would, you know, singe some eyebrows. That's a little saucy. But, uh, but now this, this, this change in programming to reflect the musical tastes of a generation I can't quite put my finger on. They do play The Lady is a Tramp, but it's some later version of it. Oh, okay. Where it's like, hate California, it's cold. And it's damp. Is, it, is it Mr. Sinatra? Well, no, it's, I mean, and that it's an imitation of him. Oh. But it's like, the instrumentation is a little bit more, a little bit more uh, Vegasy, mm-hmm. tubular bellsy, and <laughs> and and it's um, I don't know, I can't. It's it's like, is there actually a generation in between? I know there is a generation in between the, uh, in between the the World War Two generation and the Baby Boomer generation that are, that that think of themselves as a kind of lost or silent generation, but are they big enough to? To justify a radio station? Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I, have, I have to imagine that all the decision-making that goes into that is extremely market-driven. Mm-hmm. And, and in particular, um, I mean, I don't mean to sound just cynical, but I, I would have to guess that the greatest boon for any radio station is to very clearly be able to identify who's who's listening. Uh-huh. And I'll, I'll say one thing, you know, one thing that makes that hard today is when they do things like surveys – First of all, old people love surveys. They oh, totally right, fill them of out. Of course. So, so they, they um, so, so they it get surveys. Yeah, right. It skews to like. It's, oh, the yeah. we, it's the thing we can measure. <laughs> you know, but also, you know, they're the ones who have home telephone lines. So when you call, they pick up the phone and uh, will answer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These kids today, they don't do that. Mm-hmm. You can't call them on their uh, on their selfie sticks. No, you just Instagram them on their selfie stick. You send them. I'm so- uh, I'm, yeah. I'm I'm sorry. I'm eating a little bit of frozen bacon. Oh, how is it? Well, I didn't realize that it was going to create such a saucy um, sound. I have these uh, potato chips. Mm, mm, mm. Mm. We don't usually eat on the program. No, these are dirty, dirty brand potato chips. They're, that's the brand, dirty brand. Dirty. Mm-hmm. It's in quotes. <laughs> what makes them dirty? I don't know. They're they're pretty bland. I got to be like, honest. You sing "Lady and the Tramp." Mm-hmm. Or do, do you they think, just do not? You think the, the, do you think that really makes her a tramp? Just because she, what what is it? She uh, she eats early. Yeah, she goes to ball games. The bleachers are fine. Yeah. Huh. She um <clears throat> she won't go to Harlem in ermines and furs. Right, right, right. Or huh. pearls. Yeah, I don't know. I think that <clears throat> sounds that's that's that's. You know what? Bit. That's an early example of someone re. Purposing a slur. Oh, you mean like a queer thing? Mm-hmm. That's an early example of somebody saying, "You're going to call me a tramp? I'll show you mm. what a tramp is." That's this is why I'm a tramp because I'm because I'm down with the struggle. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's one pretty of the, good. Yeah, one of the first. You know what else is weird? Uh, uh, there seems I don't know if this is a trend or a mini trend, but have you seen where some popular 
pop artists are re-recording their songs. So I mean, so, they, so they're out of their contractual obligation. Uh, maybe I think even more to the point, though, and the one I'm thinking of in particular, I can't. I think I actually did buy this. Uh, Jeff Lynne, like meticulously re-recorded a ton of ELO songs. Really? Mm-hmm. And I think I think it's so that he gets the rights to those songs for those kinds of production things. Like you know, he probably his catalog was probably owned by whatever epic or whatever a long time ago yeah bro it's uh, that's absolutely why they uh you re-record it and then and then you own the whole you own the recording you know every recording has the the ownership of every recording has two sides the it's uh, you know what you've explained this to me lots of people have explained this to me i still find it incredibly baffling all i know is the people who write the music and then own the publishing are the ones who make the money that's all i know yeah right but this they they split it up into 200 percent and 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 literally, when you talk about it doesn't seem sustainable. When you talk about music, music publishing, you're talking about two hundred percent. There's a hundred percent of the recording, and there's a hundred percent of the writing, and uh, oh. and you can own the you can own the recording, and the writer owns the song. But if the only recording is the, the if the only way the song exists is in the recording. Oh, so that's why something from a New World Record or whatever could be owned by, I want to say Epic, but I forget, whatever his label was, owns the actual recording that might get used in a commercial. Right. The master. I get it. And so... And that's usually the, mu- the, the producer or the music company that owns it? Well, that's the, that's the thing. It's whoever, <clears throat> whoever gives you the money to record it traditionally. Mm-hmm. Or the, the whoever... Man. The, the man, man in this that's case. right, or whoever like you know shouldered his way in there and said, "Listen, kid, if you want to make it in this business, you're going to give me some percentage of your." And I mean, a lot of that was a lot of those people like actually shouldered their way in and said, "You're going to give me a percentage of the songwriting." Oh yeah, uh, but but definitely, if the if the label paid for you to go into the studio, then they traditionally consider themselves to own the master. Okay, I think Squeeze did it. Squeeze, uh, like. You know, and again, it's it's part. Does part it of the, sound? Does it yeah, sound? Yeah, yeah, it it's it's almost completely identical. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that would be a fun exercise. Oh, God, it seems pretty joyless to me. Well, to, just to, I mean, I, from a recording standpoint, like there, you know, there, I was thinking about this the other day. I was talking to our friend Joko, and recalling that the first real professional nerds that I knew were were audio nerds. And it was before there was a kind of nerd, but they, it was before nerd was a was a revolution in our minds. But like audio nerds are just another form of nerd, and are just exactly they 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 are just personality wise and in every other respect very similar to computer nerds. And from an audio nerd standpoint, to sit there and try and match exactly oh, yeah. the sound of a classic album, mm-hmm. oh my god, they'd just be. Sp- Spewing all over themselves. Yeah, like that guy from that one band that worked with Brian Wilson on um, Smile. Remember they did a reconstruction of Smile? It's that one guy from that pop band whose name I always forget. But uh, he worked very closely with the, the Brian Wilson people to come up with, to do a totally re-recorded version of Smile as it could have been. Wow. Yeah, right. That 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 does seem like a that seems like a very fascinating thing. That's a real, mer- but the thing is, what you know, the, the combination of being, I'm thinking like almost like a John Bryan type mm-hmm. person, mm-hmm. like somebody who really loves the 
songs, but all and you know knows every or like yeah, like uh, like Jim on the on the cruise. Those kind of people who have an ear for like every little nook and cranny of a song, but also then the challenge of trying to make it sound like it was recorded forty years ago must be really enticing. It's 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 incredible and and just <clears throat> in the sense of uh, like the the audio chain of which microphone, which preamp, which mm-hmm. compressor, which amplifier, which how, how were all those things set? And every single one of those things, if it varies even slightly, changes the tone. Mm-hmm. And so to go back and you, first of all, you'd have to do the research. What mics were they using? You know, and then go get those mics at any at any expense. Like already, it's exciting. And then put those things in a room, and and the room is going to change the sound. So you have to go back to the original studio. I mean, oh, I'm I can't, I have I'm I am turgid with excitement. <laughs> really, that would appeal to you. <laughs> I mean, just because you would do all that, you would do everything right, and then you would a b the guitar sound right to left, and it wouldn't sound the same. Yeah, and then you'd just be like, and at that point, I would, at that point, I would have nothing more to offer, right? I would have been excited about finding the mics and the room and the guitars and yeah. But then, then comes the drudgery and the vocal performances. I mean, most people's voices sound pretty different after ten or fifteen years, you know, let alone like thirty years. But but again, I would be engaged in that after the after the engineers had gone through and said, and said, all right, you're gonna have to notch four K about two, you know. DBs. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's what? Let's bring that back. You know, after they did all that and got the tones, then to go back in and sit and try and duplicate your vocal performance from a, from from thirty years from ago, like two lifetimes ago, <laughs> that would be that would be also very fun. You know. Mm-hmm. But th- but here's, this is the thing. What this is is an example. Another example. I mean, I I agree with. I understand the the impulse to re-record that stuff and take the money back from the from the man. It's a very it's a very prince. Well, especially especially today, my gosh, yeah, a very prince like thing to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's also another example of a thing where you are still a musician. You're in middle age or late middle age, and you want to do you want to find anything other than to write 10 good new songs. You want to find right. anything to do, <laughs> any kind of busy work or just, like... Just as a purely artistic distraction. Yeah, you're just like, you're moving deck chairs around, you are stacking and restacking three by five cards of, and you and it's just like, I know, you know, this is why all these bands do an album of covers. Mm-hmm. But if you could go and say like, you know what we really need to do? Let's stop work on this new record that's really bedeviling us and go back and re- meticulously re-record our old records. It's just it's a complete a complete like busy work. Well, you know, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but just anecdotally today it it seems like there's so much I guess the I guess the stuff that you know you can sell is stuff that's sold in the past. Right. And so you do the remastering, you do the box set. I mean, it's but that's not even that new of a thing. I mean, in the '90s, it was all about the box sets. Right. You know, you got to get all the stuff that you already have in vinyl, uh, you know, and in CD. So to make that enticing, like for example, like the Beach Boys um, Pet Sounds um, box is actually a really good box because there's tons of of great you know extra vocals and isolated tracks, and I, I loved that. That was a great Christmas present in 1995 or whatever. But um, but it's funny ELO in particular. Uh, in my years of like 
you know, spending so many hours in record stores, like going through the entire, the entire store, looking at every album. Like I knew the names, you know, of even though I never heard them, I knew which bands did which albums. I could tell which ones were popular. But even then, ELO in like the late seventies, early eighties, mid eighties, especially, there were so many ELO compilations. Even then, uh-huh. I mean, they hadn't had like I don't think a monster hit since probably 1982. Yeah, right. That was the last big one. That Hold On Tight song, maybe. (laughs) Like, I don't think they had that many new songs. That was 30, what, 30 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) Well, you know, those box sets with all the extra bonus tracks and the 25 different versions of Taxman and so forth, I mean, those things are great. They're they're great for for the Beatles. That's that's pretty... I mean, to actually hear how different And Your Bird Can Sing could sound is pretty fascinating. If it's a really amazing song you've heard a hundred times it's totally amazing except that in the itunes era that we live in now basically i find i find that you know in the cd era where you would put that on and be like oh my god listen to this um it it made sense to me but if you just rip all that stuff like into itunes with no distinction right um then you're in a, in that posture where you're you're you like you're making dinner and you turn on your music and you hear in the course of an hour four versions of and your bird can sing all of them slightly different or you put your headphones on and you're like oh I'm gonna listen to this it doesn't and, really work in a mix it's not a, it, it, or a shuffle it's, I mean it's bad for mixing right and I and um, I'm sure that that iTunes masters who manage their playlists don't have this problem because they just manage it. But it's yeah, another. It's hard it's though. I, another I, level I, of management. You know I, used to, I know you're a tagger, and I, I've been a tagger. I will, you know, look at the databases that are out there for the best possible version. But you know, again, it's just not not how people listen to music. I'm looking at a website right now that I feel like you should know about if you don't know about it already. It's called Albums That Never Were. Mm-hmm. You ever seen this? Uh-huh. No, I have never seen Albums That Never Were. Dot org. Dot blogspot.com. <laughs> but, uh, but go check it out. And it's this guy. It's primarily this one guy, although he does put up other people's albums. And it's given the available material, the best like reconstruction possible of certain classic albums that never existed. Like, Whoa. for example, here's uh, The Who with Who's for Tennis, which uh, uh 1968 album. And it's got stuff like Fortune Teller, it's got Magic Bus, it's got a whole... But basically, like, if an album, you know, there's those classic albums that... I like Smile, right? But then other ones, like, a really good one they've got is the Weezer record that uh, they wanted to do, that kind of what, what became Pinkerton. But, uh, what's his name? Rivers Cuomo? Is that his name? I always confuse his name. <laughs> is that his name? You have his picture in your wallet. Well, sometimes I call him River Phoenix and I get confused. <laughs> but... It was uh, it was before I think it was before he went to Harvard and but anyway you should check this out it's a lot of sixties stuff. Well, first let me point out let me point out that, that, of, that of course uh, of course this website is being maintained by an Italian because that is the most Italian thing in the world is <laughs> is to is to have when I you know the when you go to Europe and you go to an Italian record store and there are. Pretty much. I mean, if you go to, if you look in the Nirvana section in an Italian record store, there will be four hundred records, like bootlegs, and they're all bootlegs, or you know, or like double, triple bootlegs, right? I mean, somehow the the record collector mentality in Italy really is 
is uh, <clears throat> is obsessive in a different way, and they and and they will commercially because the copyright laws somehow are different, or at least used to be different. They'll commercially publish all this stuff where you know somebody will steal Chris Novoselic's Walkman mm-hmm. uh, off of a table in a cafe, and then they'll publish that as a Nirvana. You know, they'll publish the tape that's and they, in the, and they get away with it, and they get away with it, right? So there's all this fascinating stuff uh, in record stores in Italy, but this guy, I'm pretty sure, is Italian. His name is. Sonic love noise. Sonic love noise, but with a Z instead mm-hmm. of an S. <clears throat> and all of his writing is without capitalization. It's all like no capitals. Here's one by Nirvana called Sheep. Hmm. Reconstruction of the unreleased 1990 Nirvana album Sheep. Essentially the precursor to what would eventually be Nevermind. Wow. Now, you know, I, I actually had that cassette. Oh, wow. There was a girl named Lily who... I dated for a little while in about 1990, 91. She had had, uh, short red hair, very short, Mm. like pixie cut. Oh, dear. Uh, Sort of, um, what kind of red? It's that that, uh, light, light red hair. Like a strawberry blonde. Strawberry blonde, that's what I'm trying to say. Mm. And she had a tattoo of a lily on her shoulder, Hmm. uh, which I complimented her on. Uh, when we first met, I said, oh, nice, a Lily, and your name is Lily. And she turned, we didn't know each other at this point, she turned, she was like, it's the stupidest tattoo ever. I totally regret it, I was an idiot. I was like, oh. A little bit on the nose. I'm going to talk to you a little bit more. Uh, Lily worked at a bookstore that was owned by a guy who was a pervert. It was one of those bookstores that was full of cats and all the employees were 20-year-old girls, and he was like a Kind of, he looked like Van Morrison. <laughs> and um, I, I, I totally know this guy. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> he's a type. Yeah, and the, the bookstore kind of smells like cat pee and, and dander and everywhere. He's dander covered, and uh, but he's always, but all of his employees are 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 like sophomores in college, <clears throat> and he was always trying to get Lily because Lily was a was like a combat boot and baby doll dress mm. early nineties person Mm -hmm. and he would he would come to her and he'd say like i know the people you know like he was connected somehow to left bank books in paris or whatever the uh you know the shakespeare and company he was connected to those people and he was like let's just get out of here let's just you know i've got i've got eighty thousand dollars in a shoebox. you and me let's just go to paris Mm. and lily was like you're a creep and so he was he would ply her with gifts. And one day she climbed in the window of my apartment and she was like, You've got to hear this. And it was a it was a cassette of all the demos for Nevermind. Which I assume was this thing you're that this guy's talking about, the whatever the their their smile. Right. Smiley smile. <laughs> Completely different versions of every tune. And this bookstore guy had acquired this somehow and given it to Lily as a enticement for her to run away to Paris with him. And she brought it over to my house and we sat and listened to this cassette over and over and Nevermind had only been out, you know, a few months at this point. And it was, it was a total revelation to hear those tracks done differently. And at the time, this cassette seemed like one of what would only have been 20 of these things that were in existence. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, like it should be worth a 
a million dollars. And I, <clears throat> in, the, in the ethics that were in operation at the time, I considered stealing it from my girlfriend. Ooh, that good. It was that, it was that important. It uh-huh. felt it, less good. It felt, it, it felt that important. And then, um, and then I didn't. I didn't steal it from her. I regret it to this day. Lily ended up moving to Marrakesh, where she got somehow walked up, um, just you know, like <laughs> I, I don't know how she got to Marrakesh, and and I don't know how she. I mean, because she didn't have any money, and she didn't have the, any. <sighs> She didn't have any friends, <laughs> but somehow she got to Marrakesh and walked up to the front door of Paul Bowles' house. Paul Bowles at that time was probably already 75 or 80 and knocked on the door and started working as his assistant. I, I know that name, but remind me who that is. He, he wrote The Sheltering Sky. Oh, wow. And, and she just showed up. <clears throat> just showed up and... And he, uh, he's my favorite of the beat writers. He's the only beat writer I can stand. And his, his writing, <clears throat> he did a thing where he, he translated, well, he had a translator, but he wrote a series of like Moroccan folk stories. He, he brought <clears throat> this Moroccan, this young Moroccan guy named Muhammad Marabit, who wrote some amazing books. Paul Bowles' short stories are the best of all of the beats by head and shoulders. He was a guy I really admired. And I, I get a letter in the, like, you know, paper letter from Lillian. She's like, I work for Paul Bowles now. I'm in Marrakesh. You should come. Wow. I, re- I regret not going. But very shortly after, I believe that she was arrested for smuggling heroin into Europe inside of her vagina. Oh, no. Oh, that's an awkward call to your parents. Yeah, really. Whew. But I don't think her parents were still around. I think her parents had like maybe driven a Volkswagen bus off of the off of the uh, the um, highway one in Van Ness. Van- how, long, how long do you think you have to keep it in there? Is it just to get through security, or do you have to like for the, like the whole flight? Oh, for the whole flight, for sure. Oh, I don't goodness. think I don't think you take it out and like put it on your your folding table and wait until you're about to land and go put it back in. <laughs> I think, but I'm, I'm pretty sure she took a boat and the, you know, the boat ride is, yeah, it's, it's as long as a flight. Mm. You have to, you have to really work your kegels. Mm-hmm. Boy, this, this gal's got some, uh, she's got some character. I fell out of touch with her. I, 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 um, the last time we saw each other, I had quit doing drugs. And so, we had that awkward sort of awkward weekend where it's like, well, let's, <clears throat> let's get high. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't get high anymore. Oh, all right. Well, um, hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a lot of change to have to digest. <laughs> yeah, that's all we used to do. I know, but I don't do it anymore. We're still two people. We're still two humans in the world who know so, each other. What's, what's on TV? <laughs> so, but I mean, how are we going to have sex if we're not high? Yeah. I know, right? Wouldn't that be weird? We should try. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so uh that's a common problem. Yeah. Yeah. Paul Bowles though. Paul Bowles. I, I don't like the beats, but I do like him. 
And his, his, his wife, also very uh, amazing writer. Man, I can't imagine doing what she did. That's so gutsy. Yeah, but you're young. You don't give a fuck, you know? You, yeah. think, you, think, it's all, you think it's all adventure, and, um, and it is. And it keeps working over and over, right? It's like, it's all adventure. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fucking drug smuggler now. Man. And, um, you know, I never, I never sold drugs. And, and, and because I was, because I had that, because I had that thing that's kind of haunted me or that, that, that chainmail shirt that I've worn my entire life where I had some core ethical lines that I wouldn't go across. Like it, the idea of selling drugs to make a living was disgusting to me, even when I was the most disgusting, because I just couldn't ever picture myself as a drug dealer. Mm-hmm. Because just the words, drug dealer, like from the, from the youngest age, right? And that was just a thing I was never going to be. It, the excitement of it, the... the um, it's, almost, it's almost like being a child molester. It's, it's got that yeah. kind of a, a mark on it. Yeah, and some people rush into drug dealing as fast as they can, right? It's just like, oh, I can get high and make money? Duh. And it, and it's simple and they don't they don't think of it with a they don't they don't put a halo a moral halo around it at all. It's just like, right, well this guy had extra drugs and so I bought them from him and now I'm selling them to you. What could be simpler? Mm-hmm. We're all doing drugs. Why would you take a moral stance on me selling them to you? Um, and there were many, many, many opportunities for me to get into that racket, but I just was like, no way. I'm not you didn't a do drug anything. Dealer. You never did any like uh, courier mule type work. One time, I set off from Spokane, Washington, to Washington D.C. via so I so I. Uh, hopped a freight in Spokane, took the freight train to Missoula, stuck on my thumb, hitchhiked to what? Uh, Fort Collins, Colorado. You know, one of these trips across America where it was like, and then I fucking got on a donkey and I rode <laughs> it across the, and then, I, and then a guy came along with a long skateboard and we both got on it. But when I left Spokane, this guy I knew whose name was. Oh, Jesus, what the fuck was that guy's name? Um, not Treebeard, but s- <laughs> Tree something. Hmm. Tree, tree Man? No, fuck, what was his name? He was a really tall guy. Is this, this a mythic character? No, he was a real, real person. A Spokane, sort of legendary Spokane hippie. Oh, like a local character. A local character. Mm-hmm. And a super nice guy. And uh, a little bit older than us and his name was yeah like tree tree funk <laughs> i really it's, it's embarrassing to me i don't remember his name but he was trimming some pot um he was trimming a, a, a recent harvest and he had five pounds of shake Ugh. and as a, well except it was good it was a good it was good bud mm-hmm. so it was a, it was a it was five pounds of good shake it wasn't like ditchweed right but it was still shake. It was leaves and, you know, and the little nubbins and all the stuff, the, the, the detritus, right? But he had this, you know, he had five pounds of this stuff and he liked me. And so he gave it to me. 
and I didn't have any he gave money. Gave you five pounds of pot? Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. So much pot, John. Well, because he was interested in the buds, which were valuable and good. And the shake Man, was where just where I like, came from. That's we did not get a lot of the buds. We, we well, got no. a lot of the of the shake, as you say. This was the era. This was the transition era between when most of the pot you got was shake in the United States to the the current era where most of the pot you get is bud. Mm -hmm. And what's funny is in 1986, there were whole, you know, the majority of the United States of America, you couldn't get good pot no matter how much money you had. Right. And so there were, there were places and the Northwest was, was one of those places, Northern California, Oregon, Washington, Alaska had great pot fantastic pot and what when i would travel across the country like and meet stoners they would be like oh, you're from the northwest oh man do you have you ever smoked blah blah blah, blah? and i'd be like have i ever and then you'd be you'd be down in arizona or something you'd be smoking this stuff that, that just was like come on you guys seriously smoke this you like you even bother so i had this i had this giant quantity of shake that was way better pot than you could you could find in most of the oh so you could uh, do a little bit of uh, pot arbitrage right take so, it somewhere where the market could bear it and frankly frankly like I liked you know I'm one of those people that that uh, is going to smoke it. if you got it I'm going to smoke it and so really heavy duty weed I would just get super baked and wouldn't be able to function I don't know how people do it I really don't <laughs> I was and I was one of those guys that would just like oh wow you've got like it's, it's not entertaining. You're just you're just in a corner. You're in a corner. You're paranoid, and your <laughs> mind is leaping from false idea to false idea, and you're just like, I'm so baked right now. Fuck. And and I was, you know, I was a I was traveling. So in most instances, I was the stranger. Right. I would come into a I'd come into a situation, and I was like the one guy. Uh, walk into a party. I'm the one guy nobody knows, and I had this weed that was. Really good by their standards, but actually pretty mellow by my but standards. But also not too showy. Yeah, that's right. It's not like, oh, I've got a, you know, I stole this bud from the U.S. government. Right. It's like, <laughs> no, I got this really kind bud, and it's very nice to roll into joints, and then you pass some joints around a party like like you don't give a fuck. Like, here, I just, I'm, I'm just sitting here rolling joints and passing them around. How do you like that? Mm. And everybody's like, this pot is so great. It's so chill. And so I, was, so I used that pot as a, to be a hero uh, for a long time uh, because it was a lot of weed. And at one point, some guy came up to me in Durango, Colorado, and he was like, I've got 10 capsules of... Um, MDMA. Will you trade me these ten capsules of MDMA for some, you know, hand, some bag of pot? And this was when uh, MDMA was three bucks a capsule or something. Mm -hmm. Before, I think it was like right on the cusp when they made it illegal, sort like of eighty six, like, yeah, ish. And so I was like, yeah, right. I mean, this this started to feel like like uh, you're going places now, right? I'm, I'm moving on up in the in the in the world. And so I got these, uh, I got this MDMA and I gave him some weed. And then I had two kinds of drugs that belonged to me that people wanted. But, uh, you know, you can't just walk into a party and start handing out MDMA. <laughs> uh, also, I didn't, I didn't have enough to give to everybody. 
So long, long story short, I did not, I never sold any drugs, but I did start to feel like I was wheeling and dealing in mm-hmm. them. And, um, and I burned through the, th- through the ecstasy pretty fast. And then I was just back to being this guy that was like schlepping around kind of a Santa Claus bag of, <laughs> of <coughs> was it broken down nope. into separate bags or was it like just like a like a bag of potatoes? <laughs> it was so I did have five an pounds ins- is a lot of pounds, John. Yeah, I did have I had I had those big freezer bags. Oh God, you must that could make you a target. Well, yeah, but you know that this is the thing about me when I was young, I was so naive about about the world the and i and i keep attributing this to alaska that somehow growing up up there you are you're worldly in one sense that you can't help but see a lot up there and be exposed to a lot of different people and a lot of different kinds of danger but it's also it was so isolated and it, and it felt like it was 20 years behind the rest of the country and so there's this kind of like opium mayberry thing too uh and so i was constantly getting in situations when i was uh in my early 20s late teens that i look back on and go oh my god i am why didn't somebody just hit you over the head and take all your stuff and rape you and throw you in a river mm-hmm. and this is like in, in this is around the time that you were hanging out with uh the Grateful Dead people, yeah, is that in there in, somewhere in here? Is well, that time? and, and the, they are less likely to uh, murder you, but like hobos too, like just just living uh, living outside the town. Well, sort of like what happened to you, you know, when all your stuff got stolen, um, right? Was it and in France, th- in France. So in so what happened was the gradual education that I received in how in the in the dark side of the of the world where I did start to get hit over the head and I did start to get robbed. It, it, it happened, you know, when you look back at it and in a kind of graceful, gracefully incremental way. So, so the, my first experience was not that I was knifed in a park by a couple of guys. I mean, I, I was I, at one point I was riding a motorcycle across the country and I was sleeping in parks and I was asleep on a picnic table with my motorcycle parked next to the picnic table. Wow. That's and an I, image. And I woke up and, and the motorcycle is loaded with like, I had my, I had all my stuff in a, in a, uh, in an old, what, uh, what are the big, the big bags that you get in the army? The, um, Oh yeah. Uh, duffel bag. Mm-hmm. I had all my stuff in a duffel bag, bungee corded to the back of this motorcycle. And I just pulled up, into a park, park you're next. Like a, you're like a pinata, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and my the only, I mean, I was lucky that I didn't I didn't have anything. There wasn't anything in the duffel bag but dirty clothes. But I did have a fucking motorcycle at this for this brief period. And I'm parked next to this um, uh, uh, sort of. I, the reason I chose this picnic table was it had a it was covered, and and I. And it was raining, so I pulled the motorcycle under the the uh, the little roof and got out and rolled my sleeping bag out on top of the picnic table and went to sleep. Well, I wake up in the middle of the night and there are two guys standing over me, one on either side of me. Oh God! And they're asking me questions in Spanish, and I wake up and kind of sit up in my sleeping bag, and I'd never been robbed at this point, and they're 
they're talking to me. And I mean, I kind of woke up and they were already in mid conversation with me. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know where the conversation started. And I, you know, only spoke a little bit of Spanish and they're asking me questions really calmly. And it's the middle of the night. And I'm, and I realize at this moment that in choosing this park on the edge of town, I chose a place where I was, you know, where I could shoot a flare gun off and nobody would oh, know. Oh, like isolated. Yeah. And they just kind of stand there with their hands in their pockets. And we have a conversation for five minutes, you know, during which time I'm saying like, I'm not really sure what, what you need and I'm not really sure what you want and, and uh, I, I hope you're having a really nice night. And, you know, I, I knew that it was a, a dangerous situation, but I didn't know what to do. Like I, I had already made all the decisions that that precluded me from doing anything, and for whatever reason, these guys uh, just sort of looked at each other and sauntered off. Weird. And, and maybe they were just being nice. I mean, maybe who knows? That's so weird. But but when I look, and at the time I was like, well, whew, good thing I handled that situation. Laid back down, went back to sleep. But later on, I looked back and was like, uh. Were they asking me for the keys to my motorcycle? I mean, if it, that was certainly a possibility that that somebody would come along and be like, "Hmm, there's a motorcycle, and there's a kid. Like, hmm. let let's take it." Uh, but that never happened, and when it that never happened through many, many, many iterations of of that. Right, where I look back now and go like, "Oh, they were trying to kill me." <laughs> Uh, and when it did start to happen, when I did start to get ripped off, it was always in a way that was like, it hurt, it stung, but, but not, you know, not so much that, that I said, I'm, I, you know, I'm going to go join the priesthood or whatever. You know, did it feel personal when I started getting hurt? Yeah. Well, I mean, like the the thing is, it's um, it always does. Yeah, yeah. It's anything that involves an incursion into your person. I think kind of can't help but feel personal, even if it's, yeah. you know, in their, like even the guys in France, I mean, that sounds like that was all business, like something they'd done over and over and over again. Oh yeah. And I, and, and every time I've been, did I tell you about the time I was walking across the chain bridge in Budapest? Have I told you this story? No, no, I don't know this one. I'm walking across the chain bridge, which is the, you know, the like big central bridge in, in Buda, Budapest or Pest depending on who's listening. Mm-hmm. Did, 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 you get, did you get yelled at by that guy from Ukraine? Mm-hmm. Like I did? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I don't acknowledge that, no. But Budapest. Mm-hmm. Cross- I, like the way, I like the way he broke down his, his various grievances with us by yeah. person. Yeah, yeah, all, all, uh, all uh, with lots of exclamation points. And you know, did you notice that, that I got heat for stuff you said? <laughs> of course, I hope you do. Yeah. You are responsible. I am. I'm the, uh, I'm the editor. You are. You're the facilitator. I allowed. I allowed you to be how you are. You did. You imagine did. And that. You, conti- you continue to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and and two guys come around. So so the, the the way when you're walking across the the this particular bridge, like you get to the stanchions in the middle of the river, of which there are two, one on either side, the big you know the pillars, and the and the path, the pedestrian path, goes around these pillars, right? So. The pedestrian path is not just a continuous sight line of uh, like guardrail along the bridge. Oh, I see. There's like a there's like a little um, blind. 
A little blind, right? And I and um, the Manhattan Bridge is like wow, that. What a beautiful bridge! The the yeah yeah oh it's a beautiful bridge it's a it's one of the uh, it's one of the great bridges, but I'm on uh, I'm on the um, the Buddha side. I'm headed to the Pesh side, and I come around this corner into this little blind um, on the Buddha side, and there are these two guys about my age. And they're fashionable young guys. And as I come around the corner, one of them kind of looks at me with surprise and delight. And he goes, blah, 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 and speaks to me in Hungarian. And I'm like, oh, sorry, I'm American. And he's like, oh, American, of course you are. You are a, f- you are a very fashionable guy. And I was like, really? And I stop. And he's like, we are reporters for the local uh, Hungarian youth newspaper. <laughs> and I'm like, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And he says, would you mind if we took your picture for our fashion spread of, like, street fashion for the local paper? And I was like, I would not mind. I would be, you know, I would. I will take five minutes of my day to... Help to help people. To help you guys. <laughs> and I was wearing a Levi's jacket and some denim, some Levi's and some boots and a shirt. But I, wa- I, did, I, I did agree with them that I was pretty cool looking. And so I stand there, you know, kind of looking pretty, pretty seasoned. And they take, and the guy, other guy's got a camera, the guy that's not doing the talking. And he's like, you know, takes a couple of snaps and the guy goes, okay, you know, like, you know, turn around, like, give us a little bit of, you know, give us a little action. Show us, you know, let's get shot from the back. And I turn around and kind of, he's like, look over your shoulder. And I look over my shoulder at him. Real fashion shoot. Stick out my butt a little bit. Like, hello. Hello, ladies. And he's like, now, like, uh, like, like, flip the collar of your coat. Oh, no. So we can see the tags. So we can see the brand. And I'm like, oh, it's just Levi's, you know, and I kind of flip the tag and I'm show the Levi's tag like, see, Levi's, it's not, it's not that weird. I mean, I guess, I guess it used to be here in Hungary, more, more. And so, so far, everything seems, this is all just totally fine. We are having a blast yeah. all alone out here in the middle of the bridge, the three of us. And then he says, you know, shrug the shoulders off of your jacket and kind of pull it down a little bit and show the tag. We can't quite see it. And I shrug the shoulders off the jacket. I'm trying to be a helpful guy. And I shrug the shoulders down, and now I have tied myself a little bit in my own coat. Oh. Right? I have yeah, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. It's, it's down. It's down. Your, your arms don't have... Uh, your arms have restricted movement now. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm gra- gradually incapacitating myself. And something, some wind off the river or some little thing in my head, maybe I see just like a just like a tiny spark in this guy's eyes, something happens. But I mean I'm also running a running a, a, a script, a side script, where I'm like, hmm, this is weird. Like, really? The mm-hmm. the, the tags are what you want to see? And I suddenly get like a, a chill and I flip my jacket back up and turn around and look at this guy. 
like kind of square off and look at him. And then all of a sudden, it's like one of those vampire movies where the guy's eyes go white and the fangs come out and he's like, Oh my God. And he and the other dude, like, like, uh, take, jump into a posture where they're, they're not kidding anymore. They are looking for their, like they were, they were two seconds from grabbing me when I was incapacitated and now I was recapacitated and they were, you know, fangs out. Like you were prey. Total prey. But I, I had regained my footing and I had, I was facing them both and had my legs apart and was like, went into a combat posture and we sat there and hissed at each other. Oh my God. They were literally hissing at me. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, and honestly, most of the most of my feelings were rooted in being kind of disappointed that they had lied to me about being fashionable. Yeah, that would have been a nice break for you. You know, I was like, "Aw," but I, I did that. You know, I did that thing where I, where we we circled each other but until they didn't pounce on you. No, because this is the this is the lucky this is the lucky break. Like when I when I examine the moments in my life where I where I acknowledge that I have tremendous privilege one of those um one of those privileges is that i'm i'm just i'm big mm-hmm. i'm big and i look capable but it Maybe, seems like in an incident like that the whole value of being any good at their job would be to quickly you know rob somebody and have it be over with and be gone like it, the whole idea of this this you know eastern european ballet movement about vampires seems really strange well and so what so their game i think was Get a guy, turn him around, get him so he pulls his jacket down around his uh, around his elbows, and then whack him from behind and grab his wallet and his oh while you're passport. in your copper tone girl pose. I well, get it. You know, whack you from behind when you're yeah when you're like when you're if if I had not been looking over my shoulder if I had turned and just showed them the tag that they were hoping for yeah. They would have whacked me probably with the dummy camera, and uh, all they—you know—all they're trying to get is your wallet and your passport because because you're an American tourist and you've got that's their job. That's what yeah, you steal. You've got three hundred euros or something. Now that they were facing me and it was like going to be actual combat, they had a second, a third, a fourth thought about it, and in that amount of time, I was able to circle them around until the until the opening presented itself for me to head on up the path and then once i started to move you know it was over and they went the other way and we never saw each other jeez louise what a what a strange incident lots and lots of those in the course of of uh, you know in the over the years they sound like they might have been kind of new to that racket they were trying out some new things tonight we try the trick where he pulls down the jacket yeah, maybe, maybe they, maybe they thought, maybe they had done it once and it worked, and then they thought this is our game. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, there at no point did somebody, um, you know, at no point did they pull out a Soviet era pistol and point it at me. Right. At the but you know the, the some uh, famous uh, gangster once said to me, if a guy's got a pistol, it's a pretty safe bet he's also got a car. Hmm. And I was like. Is that true? And he was like, well, the first thing you do with a pistol is get a car. You understand me? And I was like, hmm, right, of course. If you had a pistol, 
it's worth more it's worth more to you uh it, it it's worth more to you as a tool to get a car than it is as a tool to take twenty dollars off of a tourist on a oh, bridge oh i see right hmm. like the first thing you would do is go put stick it in some guy's face and say give me your car right okay so, I guess if, so. You, yeah. if you've got a pistol it's a safe bet you've got a car and if you if if somebody's just standing there with a pistol on the sidewalk taking twenty dollars off of people, it's a pretty safe bet that it's not a real pistol or an operd Oh, I see. See, I was getting lost in this if you give a mouse a cookie uh thing. Okay. That mm-hmm. makes sense. I see what you're saying. So maybe not a real pistol. Okay, that makes sense. But you know, and I've had some pistols pointed at me, one in particular, uh on the on the sidewalk. And when a pistol's pointed at you, you don't think to yourself, if a guy's mm-hmm. got a pistol, he's probably got a car. Uh, you just go, oh, right, all right. Well, this is this situation. Maybe he just got the pistol. He's on his way to getting a car, and he thought he'd stop and rob me. Yeah, I used to go through this with my mom, who's like a big Second Amendment gun-carrying person. And she had all these, you know, once you're a Second Amendment person, you can come up with all kinds of reasons that you need to have a gun. Yeah. And uh, in her case, it was that she was doing depositing stuff at night, mm-hmm. you know, at the bank, back mm-hmm. when you go to that big big door and deposit the money. And I, I just always feel like I hate to burst your bubble, but like, unless you're going to have a gun pulled Marshall Dillon style before you ever get up to there, uh, you, don't have, you don't have a chance. Right. Right. You're going to like, hold on, let me get my gun. Yeah. Yeah. And w- with, with somebody who's like enough of a nut job to stand around by a bank and, and rob people who are making deposits. Like that's probably somebody with a little more skin in the game than you. Yeah, right. And so so your only option is to walk up to the bank with your deposit in one hand, pr- already ready to go. Like you're fucking Mannix or something. Like yes. in a, <laughs> going in a circle with the with the <laughs> hand and the gun in this other palm, you know. And that's going to attract attention. <laughs> you got to do it every night. Yeah. You know? Yeah, a policeman is going to see that one time. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. You know, even carrying a knife around, which I tried to do for a while, like I, well, you know, I feel a little bit vulnerable having been robbed as many times as I have. I'm talking about a certain period of my life, post uh, post golden era where I never got in trouble, uh, but before the present day, where, was, where where you would sometimes maybe be a little bit um, out of your uh, senses. Perhaps I was. Well, I was. There was a period even You're after. Probably I, pretty robbable for a while. Uh, there there were a lot of times I was robbable. Probably got robbed many times that I don't even remember. <laughs> um, and got robbed a lot of times in drug deals gone wrong that oh. were some of the worst robberies because you have scraped together some money to get oh, some drugs. Man. And all you want is some drugs and you're so close. You're right there. You're talking to the guy. It's right, about, it's right there. You're about to have the drugs, and then everyone goes home, and everybody is happy and fine, and all problems are resolved. And then the guy uh, robs you. Ugh. And then you're like, now not only do I not have the drugs, I also do not have the money that I managed to scrape together. So I have no, there's no like plan B. It makes it hard to trust people. It's so hard. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then also the humiliation of, of getting robbed. And then invariably, I would chase the drug dealer. And so then Sorry, there was cowboy hat at it. Then there was the, the fourth problem, which was that then the, then I would be in a worse situation. Oh, did you when, ever catch him? Uh, no. What happens is you chase the drug dealer, and he leads you into a uh, he leads you into a blind alley. Uh, he basically leads you into a canyon, and then there are uh, snipers 
on the uh-huh. lip Typical. of the canyon. Yep. Yep. And it. you're like, whoa, Hoss. And then he mm-hmm. turns around and says, now what are you going to do? Classic misdirection. How do you like, the, how do you like me now? Got and me then now. you're like, you know what? What I really, I, the reason I chased you was that I wanted to apologize. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to apologize for um, not having more money for you to steal, and I'm just going to back out of this canyon now. Oh, there are a couple, a couple of those. That that's that's got to be a depressing night. Super depressing, and it's it's super depressing to get ripped off by a drug dealer that you know and think is your friend. That's no, that's no fun. But oh there was gosh! A, so there was a while there where I was carrying a knife because I thought, oh sure, you um. You're a dummy to be out here in the world doing all these things and not have something. Did you have an attention of of using it? I mean, I mean, it seems like if you're going to carry a knife a lot, it really helps to have stabbed people a bunch to just kind of get a feel for it. The thing is, I did some Travis bickling. Mm-hmm. You know, you talking to me? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You, you talking to me? Well, you and can I scare would, off the amateurs a little bit, right? Yeah, and I would pop the knife out. And for a while, I had a switchblade. Ooh. And then I had one of those spider cone knives that a guy had a guy had modified the spider co so that you know a spider co you flip it open with your thumb yeah like a, yeah a thumb knife yeah but he had mo- he somehow taken this spider co I don't know how he did it uh, but he made it so that you could just pull it out and flick your wrist and this and the knife would flip out mm-hmm. it loosened the action mm. and um, so I had this. Spiderco that was very impressive. You pull this thing out, flip it like you're in West Side Story, mm-hmm. and then it's not a switchblade. It's this serrated, uh, like basically like table saw. That that knife uh, raised some eyebrows. And I'll I, bet that's it's good for dramatic effect. I miss it. I miss that knife. I lost it, but um, but uh, but I carried I carried a knife around for a while until I realized, just as you're saying. It's one thing to like pull your spider co out, flip it, and look in the mirror and say, "Now who's now who wants a?" But a, yeah, you're like that's like me at bag. twelve with a pair of rubber chucks, yeah. going like, "Aha, you ready for a piece <laughs> of this? <laughs> well, how about I just take these from you and and hit you with it till I get tired?" Yeah. Okay. But the, but the prospect of actually like um, getting in a knife fight. I mean, the danger of of uh, getting in a knife fight with somebody is if they are even. If they are even slightly better at knife fighting than you are, oh, and, and you could very easily hurt yourself in a knife fight. Well, the, I think the danger is that you get into a knife fight with somebody who is, as you described, mo- has more skin in the game than you, is more desperate than you. You are mad that they stole uh, thirty dollars. They are desperate to stay out of jail and desperate to live. And they, what they'll do is take your knife away from you. Mm-hmm. And then stab you with your own knife, mm-hmm. and you want to talk about losing some dignity. <laughs> All I wanted was drugs. <laughs> you know, now you took like, my knife too. Yeah, I went into this uh, to get thirty dollars worth of drugs, and now I'm dead. Yeah, oh. that talk about a bad plan. So I, stopped, I did keep carrying a knife because it's good to have something to cut cheese. Yeah, that's true. But that's- I, <laughs> but I stopped <clears throat> that I was ever going to pull a knife out and point it at somebody many many years ago. Because I just I pictured the scene like I am not a knife fighter, and if I encounter one, I don't want to show him my knife. People get such fantasies, you know, such fantasies about you know how stuff is going to go and, and what's going to happen in that situation. And I, I just my impression is that the more often you've been in fights, or the more often you've had violence 
visited upon you. You've tried to defend yourself. Like it seems like you get more and more realistic about how much of that fantasy action. You know, you're not really going to do like a roundhouse kick and end the fight. <laughs> uh, did you know that my broken finger of several months ago still pains me? Give me an update on this now. Now remind me how this happened. Well, the 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 fist fight I got in with the two kids. Oh uh, right, of course. And and, and 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 I was counseling you to gently to maybe go have that looked at, and right. it was getting worse and worse. And then yep. you you put something together with like uh, chopsticks and band aids. That's right. That's right. I finally, you know, I finally went to the doctor. The doctor uh, said, "Well, I don't think it's broken. You've been walking around for three weeks with it tied to some chopsticks." Um, it's probably just a sprain. Yeah, and but he, he doesn't know your background. So he, he, doesn't, yeah, that, he doesn't know yeah. like like what kind of stock you're from. He did the x-ray and he was like, oh, it's fractured. And uh, since you've been walking around with it for three weeks uh, tied to some chopsticks, there's nothing we can do. It's not, we're not going to re-break it. Hmm. So he said, you just need to start stretching it now. <laughs> And so, oh God, he was like, you know, usually it takes, what did he say? 90 days to, to completely heal. And so for a month, for two months, I'm just like, oh, agonizingly working this stiff, broken finger. And is the idea to, to, to coax it or tease it into being in the right position or that it doesn't swell or what's, what's the, what's the. Mm-hmm. I think what what, en- what ends up happening is you know the bone starts to rebuild itself and then you just uh, the the muscles and the scar tissue you know the scar tissue just wants to adhere to the to the heel to the to the to the place where it was broken and if the scar tissue succeeds in doing that then you can't move your finger oh You'll ne- you won't be able to move it and uh-huh. use it and so you have to you have to every day kind of break uh-huh. apart the scar tissue oh god. And so I was doing this for two months and then three months and I was like, come on, what is wrong? And I went into the doctor and I was like, you know, this can't possibly be what happens when you break your finger in the movies all the time. Guys do things where it's clear they broke their hand and the next day they're out fighting crime. Yeah, they might uh, do this flexing thing a little bit. You yeah, know, they're like, kinda, ah, ooh, yeah. you know, like Mel Gibson ooh, goes, smarts. oh, ouch. And it's clear that he broke his hand in five places but the next day he's like solving solving mysteries uh and they're like no it really you know if you break your finger it takes the it takes 90 days to to fix it and then the then the doctor looks at the chart and he says oh oh but i mean a guy your age takes six months oh criminy and And he doesn't offer to break it and fix it that's not well, on the table. No, he said, you know, it's fine. It's like it, it was fractured. It was slightly displaced, but it's healing now. And it, it, it's not, you know, it's not a, um, it wasn't a compound fracture. It wasn't like radically displaced. It was just a little bit, the bone was just a little bit sideways. And then it filled in um, in between. And now it, the bone, if you, if you took the bone out, you know, if, if, if when people look at your skeleton, they will be able to see that it was broken and that bone will have a little bump. This is your right forefinger, right? Yeah. Oh, God. So anyway, that happened in like, the, you know, the first, like of, September. first of September, right? Yeah. And now here we are in February and I am still every day exercising this finger. It is still 
stiff and, you know, hurts. And so since September to, to now, there have been probably three or four instances where I was like in a situation overseas or, or in, a, in a strange town or wherever where I was like, this guy, this guy's gaming for a punch in the nose. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, I look down at my hand and I'm like, oh, what's up? What's up, nose puncher? You're not the guy to give this guy a punch in the nose. You're still recovering from the last time he oh, gave a guy John, a punch. Oh, John, that's, that's tragic. And it's just like, welcome to, welcome to the terror dome. <laughs> like, I, 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 you know, and then I start looking around like, hey, hey, who can give this guy a punch in the nose? I can't do it. I got a busted hand. I would have done it myself, but. You know what? You know what, guy? You know what, guy? I would punch you in the nose right now if I didn't already have a busted finger and I'm pointing at him with my crooked finger. If I didn't already have a busted finger from the last guy's nose I punched. Mm-hmm. So don't don't toy with me. Yeah, it's that's that like, like speech you want to really practice. That's so lame. Oh, it so sucks. Yeah. So basically I'm just like becoming increasingly uh just a guy in a wheelchair with a blanket over his legs. <laughs> This episode of Roderick on the Line is sponsored by Foremost, a small-batch American-made clothing line for men and women from the same wonderful folks who brought you Need Edition. Each month, Foremost designs and produces limited collections of men's and women's clothing, roughly four to five items per gender, alongside an interview series with some of the world's most inspiring creators. Here's the great part. The average price of Foremost products is under $50. That's crazy balls, guys. That's like hardly any money at all. Foremost launched its inaugural collection this month with interviewees including Amber Venz Box, who has an awesome name. She's a remarkable young executive supporting thousands of independent writers around the world. And Austin Mann, no relation, founder of Weld and a gentleman behind a great deal of Apple's photography, including work that's on the Apple Store just right now. Isn't that crazy? Here's the thing. You got to go and visit foremostedition.com because Roderick on the Line listeners can use the code PINGPONG. That's one word, PINGPONG at checkout to receive 20% off. If that's not crazy enough, go to neededition.com. You can also use ping pong, one word, ping pong, at neededition.com for 20% off as well. Congratulations to our friend Matt and his wonderful growing army of companies that are making the world look so much handsomer every day. We thank you very much for supporting Roderick on the line. Visit foremostedition.com. Ping pong. <laughs> Tell me the story about punching the guy again. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, I have my nurse wheel me out on the deck of the ship. Mm-hmm. And there I was say, on the chain bridge. It was a night just like this. <laughs> oh, so depressing! It's so depressing. What is happening, Merlin? What's happening to oh, us? Oh man, it's you got all kinds of problems. You got entropy. You got gravity. Uh. I'm just. Free, you I'm, know what I, it is? It's free radicals. It's uh, free see, fucking radicals. Now you want to get those to bind to something? Is that how it works? I think you want an antioxidant. Uh, an antioxidant, huh? Yeah. You and what that does is it it antioxidizes. Huh. Mm-hmm. I should look into that. I got to do something, John. They they were for a long time, Merlin. They were talking about building spaceships that traveled interstellar distances on solar wind. And that same solar wind is pummeling us every day with free radicals. And yet nobody's making a spaceship. Yeah, right. What, we, where, where are our... It's all downside. Yeah, we're just... Sailing ships. 
consider itself for us. interstellar sh- sailing ships. We're just getting pummeled with with uh, with solar radiation, and we don't even have uh, interstellar you sailing. Would, you ships. would punch the solar winds, but you can't. You're still healing. Yeah, that's who's right. gonna who's gonna who's gonna defend this planet, John? <sighs> I feel like so so in our lifetimes, yours and mine. Mm-hmm. There did not used to be health nuts, except in the Jack Lalane model, where you would go uh, tow a Tow a ship across San Francisco Bay, pulling. You it could be an enthusiast, but like if you were like in our childhood, like you were like a nutty person from California. If you thought about that stuff, if you thought about it at all, like a but, not an un, the kind of person who would buy whole wheat bread, like somebody who was a real fringe character. Why would you buy brown bread when you had perfectly good? Already white? got wheat in. You got rainbow bread. It's soft. You can make a sandwich and smash it. But what we're coming, what we're coming up upon, is the proof of concept era. Right, where it, people that started eating vegetarian and vegan diets and practicing uh, Eastern medicine and thinking... Uh, oh, you're saying we're getting a cohort at this point. We're, yeah. We've got 40 years of this under our belt, so now we should start to see some real results. That's right. People who have been living mindfully mm. since the 60s, right? So there should start to be this this cohort, as you say, who are exceeding life expectancies. And and we 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 we, ha- we can't see it yet because the data is still there's too much static. But there will there should if those life philosophies have any validity, there should start to be people who routinely live to be 130, right? It, it sure seems like if that that pattern should we, if it works, we should start seeing it for sure. Right, because there have always been people that live to be 118 years. Like in old. the yogurt commercials, uh, remember the have, old ladies, the old like Romanian ladies in the yogurt oh, commercials. Yeah, right, exactly. Or yeah. I mean, there's always some lady, some lady in France who's been smoking Galois for uh, for oh, right. 95 years. She washes herself with cooking oil once a week. Yeah. She smokes and drinks. Everything's fine. Yeah, she's, she's never doesn't have a worry in the world. So. So what we what we need to start seeing is some of these Pete Seeger types who are still doing naked yoga <laughs> and at 118 120 years old mm-hmm. and then they're just like not dying and you go wait a minute there's something to this this guy's been eating bean sprouts uh and like like some kind of um hummus with no honey and now he's 150 years old, and look how happy he is. He's still having sex, this guy. That's right. He's, so, mm, boy. But, but if, we t- if we don't start to see those people pop out from the herd pretty soon, mm-hmm. then we're going to have to reevaluate the whole concept of, um, of that style of like health. I remember a guy saying to me, I was, I was cooking a steak in a frying pan at some guy's house, and he walked through and he was like, enjoy the hormones. <laughs> Okay. He was a guy that was living on, on wheat, wheatgrass juice. Oh, sure. He's on the way to naked yoga. Yeah. yeah. Enjoy the hormones. <sighs> and I was like, ugh, I'm not going to now. Yeah. That like sounds, a lot. That, that sounds disgusting. I have fried hormones. <laughs> <laughs> but, I'm, you know, I'm watching this guy. I, mm-hmm. still, I, still, I still know who that guy is. I remember his name. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be watching. A lot of those guys are dicks. Oh, they're, yeah, they're dicks. See, but here's the thing. How do you control for that? How do you control for the improvements in healthcare and being a dick? Right. 
Oh, right. You you think that maybe he might live longer just because he's a dick? You know the type. He's got his little net bag that he takes to the Whole Foods or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know the kind? It's absolutely this guy. He's a massage therapist now. Oh, my God. So all the massage and everything. Now, I'm not saying that living in a, living a life where you're, where you're having massages and, uh, and you're, eating, um, you're eating stuff out of a bin at the supermarket, maybe, that isn't, maybe that's a wonderful life to live anyway for its yeah. own sake, even if, you, even if you die at 65. But like contrasting myself, imagining myself like, um, you know, imagining dying uh, of a heart attack, kind of like Goldie Hawn's husband in uh, Private Benjamin. Mm. Oh, just or like, uh, like uh, the running guy, Jim Fix, right? Remember him? Mm-mm. Remember the guy who wrote the book on running? Uh, did, he di- did, did he die of a heart attack? <laughs> he totally died. He had like a congenital heart failure. You hear about congenital heart failures all the time. Why are we not finding congenital heart failures before they happen? Well, answer you me know, that, yoga boy. I think that I think that the uh, that you, your main demographic of people that want to discover a cure for congenital heart uh, disorders are people who have just recently died oh, of a congenital heart disorder. All those hormones. Yeah. God, that's tragic. So anyway, I'm watching the culture very carefully mm-hmm. to start seeing because Pete Seeger did live to be a ripe old 98, mm-hmm. but the country is full of of skinny guys who ate nothing but Jello and like smoked dime store cigars who mm-hmm. lived to be 98. My yep. my grandfather put a new roof on his barn when he was 98, and he never ate a vegetable. I barely had the energy to get coffee today. Yeah, I know. Oh, my God. You, you know, know what it is? It's the free radicals. Uh, so i got to find a way to bind those. Somebody on my uh, Twitter said something the other day that blew my mind. Um, a, a Japanese girl, like a girl born today in Japan, has a life expectancy that will take her into the 22nd century. Wow. Right? Figure you can live to be 85 at least. So I was talking to a kid recently who went to Japan for the first time. And he's a tall guy, teenager. And uh, he said, I was really anxious about going to Japan uh, because I'm tall. But he said, uh, all the kids that are my age in Japan now are also really tall. No. And I was like, is that true? And he was like, yeah, it's, uh, I think it was just, a, it's just some kind of thing where. You sure it wasn't Holland? No, no, it was Japan. Hmm. He was like, young people in Japan are tall now. And so. This whole business of like going to Japan and and everybody is five feet tall is like a in in fifty years that's not going to be. See, true. I'm on the horns of a dilemma here, John, because I can't decide whether I should just start um, refiling and reformulating all of my stereotypes about Japan or mm. whether I should start over. Because maybe it's because they live at home with their parents. Maybe that I, makes know, them tall. My my sense was my great my great grandparents were four foot nine, and wow. my then my grandparents were you know, in the mid fives. And then my dad was six foot one. And I remember when I was a kid and my dad was six one or six two. That was tall. And people remarked upon it, mm-hmm. right? Like your dad is six, six two or something and six one. And, uh, and at a size 12 foot and it was like, hell yes, look at us. Like that we're, we're big Americans. And then when I got to be six, three, and let's not talk about Let's not talk about the, the, oh, the, I know. the you're changing seeing, rulers. Are you still seeing discrepancies? Well, no, I haven't been back to a doctor. Good After for the, you. Good I, for just, you. I was like, you know what? Quacks. I'm let not them, going let back. them fix their measurements, and then you come back. That's, right. That's get right. It right. Fix your fucking rulers, and I'll be back. But, uh, you know, 
and I and I was like, well, what the, the difference is that my dad and I both ate Kraft macaroni and cheese, and all the de- generations before did not have access to Kraft macaroni and cheese. And Kraft macaroni and cheese is a growth hormone. Hmm. It's the only thing I can explain. It's the only difference. I mean, they had pork chops. I had pork chops. Some people are going to say that's anecdotal, or, or, or but, but I, I'm with you. Mm-hmm. My, my daughter's huge, and she loves macaroni and cheese. Kraft macaroni and cheese. Now, for a while, I thought it was tab soda mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, my dad drank tab, and I drank tab, and the, the generations before did not have access to tab. But the problem is that nobody drinks tab anymore. No, you never but, see it, do you? No, but people keep growing, so it can't be tab. Oh. It has to be Kraft macaroni and cheese. It's the only, it's the only reasonable explanation. Yes. And I'm sure that in Japan uh, today, Kraft macaroni and cheese, I mean, I have no evidence of this, but if you do a little research, I'm sure you'll find that yeah. it is very popular. Oh, I, I would have to imagine that it's extremely popular. There's no other plausible explanation. Right. And in, in Canada, uh, for our Canadian listeners... They call listeners, it uh, Kraft Dinner, right? Kraft Dinner, that's right. That's what you're thinking of. It's got to be different. Well, yeah, Kraft Dinner, right? If you, if you buy a Pontiac... Well, they don't sell Pontiacs anymore, but in the old days, if you bought a Pontiac in Canada, it would have a different name and a slightly different grill, and it would have been made in Canada. Oh, it's just like, what are you doing up there? That seems like, that seems like a lot of overhead for a very minor distinction. <laughs> right? Build a whole factory. But the thing is, they're, they, they're, they do other work in the They've got the Canadian content uh, rules, right? You've got you to gotta play lots of Nickelback on the radio. They have laws about this, John. That's why people like Sloan. They're a Because they're, well, they're forced to. All right. You know... <laughs> <laughs> it's incontrovertible. <laughs> His body was covered in coke fizz. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, you know I've been back for, uh, and uh, this is an important day because it's around two weeks now we've been been back from the cruise. Yeah, and uh, I still miss the gravy. <sighs> it's one thing. It's one thing. I I, I I I don't have anybody to talk to about this, and I'm so glad that you said that. Yeah. My whole life, up until just very recently, if I just had a hot tray of gravy mm. on the stove at all times, <sighs> and no matter what the meal was, if it was craft dinner, if it was fried chicken, if it was noodles and butter, I mean, all the great foods, mm. if I could just on my way to the table stop at the, at the hot tray. No question. And put two ladles of gravy on it. Ugh. Life would have been so much better. And then you get on a cruise ship, and they got like four kinds of gravy. So much gravy, and they have gra- they have a gravy for every meal. The sausage gravy. I, see, John, I realized this in the 90s. I realized, I think I've told you this before, but I realized that if I ever became successful, which I have not, but <laughs> if I ever did, and I had the means, I would have, my one like like stupid white guy thing to do is I would have sort of like a drink machine at a 7-Eleven, something along those lines, probably a bespoke product built to the purpose for me, <laughs> but it would be a gravy serving fountain. I would be able to have hot, like a, like a white sausage gravy. Mm-hmm. Right, you get a brown like a like a uh, mashed potato kind of gravy. You want do you want chunks in your sausage gravy? A little bit, a little bit, not a chunks? lot, not a yeah. lot, but but enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It should be a little bit substantial. Right. It's, it's sm- not going to come out smooth, thick brown gravy for your mashed potatoes. That's right, that's right, and uh, and some au jus. I'm going to want to have and a new one that I don't know if you've gotten into. Uh, you ever had maitre d butter? It's not what it sounds like. What? <laughs> well, if you ever go to a steakhouse... I feel like I've given some people maitre d' mm, butter. Boy, I'll tell you, those walks could be very long and warm. Arr. But you uh, know what? Well, you can make it at home. You get a couple sticks of butter, put in three uh, teaspoons of fresh lemon juice, a little, uh, little bit of salt, a little bit of pepper, 
And then you let it congeal. I put it in like a Ziploc bag. And so they can squeeze it out like a pastry thing. And you put that on a steak, brother. You have never had anything like it. Now, see, now to me, that would be part of the gravy fountain. Oh, I see. Put it on a steak. Put it on a steak. It's good for everything. It's like extra salty butter with lemon in it. And boy, is it ever good. So to me, still, I continue to say, if I ever become successful, it's not looking great right now. But if it ever does happen, great. Never know, Merlin. Never know. Life is long, although not very long. Well, I don't do yoga. And if I did, I'd do it like a gentleman with some fucking clothes on. So you're saying like a four a four nipple gravy fountain? Yeah, four apertures. It might come from above. It might be like on hoses, like in an oil change place where you pull it down and just <laughs> splurp it right on. <laughs> uh-huh. the, the white one's the white one's a no brainer. That's sure. uh that boy, I'll tell you, you ever have Whataburger? You've had Whataburger probably, oh, right? For sure. You gotta yeah. order order off the menu at Whataburger. Well, or- Whataburger also they do great breakfast. They got taquitos and they got a really good uh, good sausage gravy. So something like, I think I'm going to go with sausage, I'm going to go with brown, uh, I'm going to go with uh, juice, anything I'm missing. Well, See, no, not, I'm not thinking not a tomato sauce. A tomato sauce is, eh, that's a day-to-day sauce for me. It's not like a big deal. It's not a thing that you want in a tube. Well, yeah. It's not something where I would not find myself, as I'm walking to the table, putting tomato sauce on things. I would put sausage gravy on virtually everything. Well, you know what, you know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say cheese sauce. Oh. Where, where's your cheese sauce? Ah, cheese sauce would be nice. And that would be also just be nice like through the evening when you're enjoying some TV with your family. You still get a little bowl of cheese sauce. Well, and so here's the thing about cheese sauce, right? You got to have, you got to, you, you want cheese sauce for your nachos. Yeah. But you don't want to have two cheese sauces, but you also have to have a non-nacho cheese sauce for your Welsh rarebit. Well, what kind of gravy is that? Well, it's like a, it's like a Welsh rarebit's uh, like cheese toast, right? Yeah, it's like a, it's like a, a sharp cheddar cheese. Oh sauce. God, that sounds good, right? And you know, of course, the the meal that we make, my special family meal, is is a version of Welsh rarebit. It's like biscuits with ham, and then uh, and then a fried egg, and oh. then cheese sauce. Oh boy, I would enjoy that. It's insane, and <sighs> and you know, you can put some thick ham on there. You can put some thin ham. It's a way. I think the windjammer has created unrealistic expectations. So, so you got your four cheese. You got your four sauces. You got your white gravy, your brown mm-hmm. gravy, your au jus, and your uh, what was the fourth cheese? one? cheese? What was cheese going to be a fourth? No, for for me, see, I'm on the bubble. I'm on the bubble. The white and the brown, I would introduce into almost every meal. The yep. butter sauce, maybe. The, oh, butter sauce. That's right. That's yeah. right. So for me, I think I would I would take the butter sauce out. I'd put a cheese sauce in there, but it would be a tough. It would have to be a non. Uh, jalapeno flavored mm-hmm. cheese sauce, and then I would just add the jalapeno flavor. Like a nice cheese sauce, not like some kind of industrial cheese. No, 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 not a yeah. not a not a Velveeta cheese, but mm-hmm. a cheese sauce that's very hard to keep from separating. Cheese, oh yeah. yeah, and I mean, I'm just imagining it. You know, maybe like when you work in a bar and you got the little spritzer, you know, for Coke and soda. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tell me, is there a is there a is there a meal? Is there a plate that you think? does not want a sauce. No, every meal could be improved with some kind of a sauce. In fact, it could make the meal. I mean, you take some very simple meals, the kinds of meals we're talking about, noodles, try that with some brown gravy on it. Mm, so good. You know what I'm saying? So good. When I was in college, I would get two boil-in-a-bag Salisbury steaks, oh. which were, what, 50 cents at the time? Mm-hmm. 50 cents a piece, two, um, two Stouffer's boil-in-a-bag Salisbury steaks. I'd make a huge pot of noodles and just throw the Salisbury steaks and gravy in the in the pot of noodles. That sounds so good right now. It's insane. It's insanely good and for, for less than $2 I could feed an army 
uh, of one my, myself. I think I'd still, yeah, I'd still want to keep chili special. I don't think I'd want, you know, I guess you could get pump chili. It's something that's it's a technology that's no, out no, there. No, 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 that's a different thing. No, I think you should keep it nice. I think you should you should have some some nice canned chili. That's easy enough to do. And you wouldn't chili is not a thing that you would. Well, you put the cheese. I don't sauce think of on. chili as a sauce. Chili is chili is the special uh, special guest at dinner. You know, it's going to be good with anybody, but it, but it is it is the center of the event for me. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for me too. Like if, if sometimes I make a hot dog and put chili on it, mm-hmm. but the focus is on the chili. Mm-hmm. The hot dog is just like it's like a topping, except it's underneath. Mm. Right, that's so true. <laughs> right. Ugh. And so I'm trying to think of a single thing that I would want that I wouldn't augment with one of those four sauces. I think you could put some sauces on other gravies. I think if you had like mashed potatoes, like pretty good mashed potatoes, buttered mashed potatoes with brown gravy, you put a little bit of sausage gravy on top of that. See, oh I do God. this all I do this all the time. I get a <sighs> plate of food that it, that already has a gravy or a sauce and then I'm <laughs> then I'm and I put a second sauce on it. I, I did it last go, night. I want to go on the cruise again. <laughs> I did it last night. I ordered I was in a I was in a Thai restaurant and I ordered a swimming rama. Uh, but in this restaurant, for whatever reason, they called it showering Rama. Hmm. And I was like, I don't want, I, I want a Rama to swim. I don't want a Rama in a shower. That's not an image I want. But anyway, I, so I ordered it and I used their own nomenclature. I didn't do the thing where I was like, oh yeah, can I get a bathing Rama? Oh, you didn't tie splain? No. And uh, I just said, I would like showering Rama, please. And then I got, uh, then I got a Panang. And I mixed the sauces. Oh, brother! Put a little bit of the pane. I let, I let you know. You let them let them touch in the middle, mm. and then you're having a then you're having a peanut panang party. <laughs> <laughs> yes, mm. gravies. Man, kind of low energy. Low energy today. Are you feeling a little bit? Uh, I'm feeling kind of low energy. Feeling I feeling like I, you want to be on a cruise, don't you? Oh my god, that fucking gravy. Whew. Every meal, you just go there and there's gravy. And those little fried eggs, at first I was resistant to the little fried eggs. To just they, grab a fried egg, you don't know what you don't know who fried it. They were really, they felt kind of mass-produced, which mm-hmm. kind of put me off at first. And eventually I was like, wow, these are totally mass-produced. I can just have a little over-medium egg anytime. Uh-huh. Isn't that incredible? Just go and get one. And that's, I mean, when I go to the grocery store and I see those uh, hard-boiled eggs in a bag... I just discovered these. I went to my friend, the place I went in Portland. They go to Costco, and they buy a big thing of boiled eggs in bags, and they just eat them. Yeah, and I was very my suspicious God. of that. I was like, that's not a thing that I... I was w-. like, that, that, there's no way that's ever actually been fresh. That looks like it's got to be old and gross. And I had like five of them. You don't even have to peel them. You just, you just eat eggs. Yeah, they're just there, and you can make, uh, you can make a, uh, a chopped salad. And oh, I got to get that. I got to get egg. that. Man. Maybe if I just kept a little bit of gravy on a, on a low heat all day long, you know, a little, little, bit, little bit of sausage gravy all day long. How do you think the rest of your family would feel about that? I mean, the house would smell amazing. <laughs> I think they wouldn't say anything for a couple of days. Just be like, Did you mean to leave that on? <laughs> it just keeps getting better. It tastes better on day three. <laughs> it's a reduction. Honey. It's a reduction. All right. That's it. Mm.